George Harab, host of the Geologic Podcast. Hello, Canada! The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is really hard to play on one guitar. With your hosts, Evan Bernstein. to the universe. Well, hello and welcome, everyone. George, thanks for that wonderful introduction. So first, I wanted to uh, thank the Center for Inquiry Vancouver uh, and uh, Ethan Clow and all the guys at, at CFI for organizing this, and Fred Bremer, who is uh, one of our longest-time fans and did a lot of the heavy lifting. Evan, start us off as you always do with Today in Skeptical History. November 20th, 1984. Uh, The SETI Institute was officially founded that day. Our friend Seth Shostak over there, who's appeared on our show many times. Um, For those who don't know, the SETI Institute is a not-for-profit organization which is looking for evidence of life beyond Earth, a scientific discipline known as astrobiology. And the mission of SETI is to explore, understand, and explain the origin, nature, and prevalence of life in the universe. Very important organization. How could it it be for profit? I guess that's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Corporate, uh, no, I don't know. I don't know. I suppose it could be. Now, it's, it's, so in 1984 is when uh, the SETI Institute began, but the search for extraterrestrial intelligence began way before that. And actually, uh, the month of November marks the 50th anniversary of uh, Frank Drake's work in his initial uh, work in searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. So uh, SETI made a point of uh, sending out a press release this month. Uh, in regards to that, so it's been 50 years worth of uh, looking for uh, the signals from little green men out there. Yeah, and we've spoken with Seth before. I mean, obviously they haven't found the aliens yet, but that doesn't mean that they're not doing Some good work. Some people think we have. Yeah, but SETI has. No. I mean, yes. according to SETI. Um, but they're making progress. I mean, they're actually doing real science. I mean, they're not Absolutely. just you know looking for signals and waiting for something to happen. So it's not like it's going to be no progress, nothing, and then suddenly we we have alien contact. Although hopefully that actually will happen. But you know, Seth and the other guys at the SETI Institute point out that they actually are getting some actual science done in the meantime. So this is one of those topics where there's not that many topics where well-meaning skeptics honestly disagree about stuff. Mm-hmm. This is one where I find that there are some people who think that SETI isn't re- quote-unquote real science because they don't have a falsifiable hypothesis. Yep. But I think that's BS. I mean, it takes a very narrow view of science 
Um, there's definitely a phase of science where you're just looking for stuff. That's the beginning part. You know, the question is, if they found something, would they go through a process to test hypotheses about what that signal could, could be? And then they actually do that all the time. They find candidate signals all the time. And then they have a standard process that they go through. It's a very interesting process. Yeah, to, to, to eliminate all other possibilities. You still get to the point where you're left with, all right, we've eliminated everything we could think of and everything we know about. Therefore, we're left with, with an anomalous signal that has some very curious aspects to it, some interesting aspects that could be intelligent. Um, and in fact, you know, the intelligent design people use that to say, well, see, that's what we're doing, right? We're doing the same thing. We're saying that life, you know, we're inferring intelligence in the, in the existence of life the same exact way that SETI would infer intelligence in the origin of a signal. It's a very slick argument, but it, it fails, unfortunately, when you, when you look at that added at more depth, because SETI actually has a, a process. Who yeah. here actually thinks that SETI is worthwhile? Agreed. Wait, All right, so like, like 10 people. Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> Very enthusiastic one dude up there. Probably an alien. He's an alien, right? Trying to throw us off. <laughs> David Icke, is that you? <laughs> Wasn't there a funny story about on something that looked odd? They were going through those protocols, yep. and then um, as they were notifying the series of astronomers throughout the planet to actually try to see what this thing was, didn't like the New York Times call and say, "Hey, what do you guys? Did you guys find an alien?" Which is interesting because it makes you know it's funny because they think that the government could hide this kind of stuff, and meanwhile right. the New York Times found out about it before even all these other scientists knew about it. So it yeah, there was a there was a candidate signal that took 24 hours to discover that it was not alien. Uh, in that 24 hours, they were never contacted by the men in black or the, the helicopters didn't descend, right. but the New York Times called them. Right, so that, that's a good anecdote as to, no, you couldn't keep this under wraps, right? I mean, the New York Times was ahead of any secret organization right. that would get be out. out there. Steve was just handing a note that says they found life. <laughs> it works. Shut up. Yeah. It works. Sadly, it turned out it's Oprah. Jay. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> Who here doesn't like Oprah? Yeah! <laughs> and that dude up there, he's like, I like Oprah. <laughs> uh, so Bob is going to tell I, us about antimatter. Uh, this was fairly interesting. Uh, a recent collaboration at CERN uh, had a kind of an interesting breakthrough with antimatter. They were, they actually, they created anti-hydrogen atoms, uh, which isn't much of a milestone because they've created them before, but what they did was they were, they were able to trap anti-hydrogen atoms for about 170 milliseconds, which is, uh, which is pretty unprecedented, and it, it might sound like a meager achievement, but according to Jeffrey Hanks, who's a spokesman for the Alpha Collaboration at CERN, he says that we're ecstatic. This is a five, this is five years of hard work. So, so it is quite a, a milestone within within these circles. Now, an anti-hydrogen atom is, I guess maybe it's kind of obvious, but it's got a it's got a, a positron, it's got a yeah, it's got a positron in orbit instead of an electron, which has got a positive charge and it's got a an anti-proton in, in the core. So it's a, it's the opposite of a hydrogen atom, just the opposite charge. What they're trying to do is they're trying to compare an anti-hydrogen atom with a regular hydrogen atom and figure out, okay, how similar are these things? What are the energy levels? You know, do they react to the electromagnetic forces similarly, which is kind of like the standard model of physics kind of says that this really should happen. It's, like a, it's kind of based on this, this idea, one, based on one of these ideas. Bob, why do antiparticles exist? The question is, why, why, why don't they exist? 
right? That's really the question. I mean, according to laws of physics, there should be symmetry and there should be as much matter as antimatter. And we've talked about right. this before, is why do we live in a universe made of matter? Why wasn't there exactly the same amount of antimatter that completely annihilated all the matter in the universe? Right, and, and there was. I mean, there was pretty much pretty much equal amounts of matter and antimatter, and they a annihilated tiny each other. a little bit of residue, and that's and our we're just like the, the yeah. remnants of that yeah. kind of... So there's an asymmetry, and this kind of research could, you know, although we, we, again, we've talked about what that asymmetry might be from, but this also could could come up with explanations. What I found, a couple of interesting points, Bob, okay. that uh, I know you're going to cover too, but we've been making, able to make antimatter particles before. I mean, we can use the, you know, the accelerators. They're very, it takes a lot of energy, actually, to make a, to make a particle of antimatter. But they, because matter annihilates, antimatter annihilates with matter, as soon as they're created, they annihilate with whatever matter there is, you know, in the environment. Right. Um, so they exist for like a thousandth of a second, really a tiny fraction of a second. The breakthrough here is that they were able to, you, to exploit a series of magnetic fields. Um, essentially, they used a trap where the magnetic fields were stronger at, towards the, the walls, walls yeah. and then progressively weaker towards the middle, so that it tended to guide the atoms towards the middle. What did they use? A magnetic what? You said it, it's, like a trap. it's a trap. Yeah, <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> and now the interesting thing is that now it's, it's easier. It's a lot easier to trap anti-particles like protons or positrons because they're charged, right? And the right. Tra- charged particle will respond to a magnetic field. But an atom is neutral because it's a, you know, a positron and a, and a, and a negative uh, proton. But um, they still have a magnetic property. Right, the, that the spins of the particles the kind of gives it a subtle magnetic character yeah. that they can kind of manipulate to, right. a, to a certain extent. But it's not very strong. So they, right. they, But they were able to exploit this trap to, to essentially keep the particle from annihilating instantly, right? Right, so, right. so the, instead of three milliseconds, it was 170 milliseconds. Yeah. I mean, it's still fractions of a second, but it's a quite a big, quite a big increase. In like a tenth of a second is what they were. But although in one of the reports, Bob, I don't know if you saw this, they, the, the uh, researcher said, we haven't published it yet, so I can't tell you how long we've gotten up to, but they've gotten up to, like, he made it sound like multiple seconds. Wow. But, he, but he wouldn't... That would put in thousands of milliseconds. Thousands wow. of milliseconds. Yes. <laughs> so, that's what we're Love talking it. about. We're not talking about a container with a with you know a, a gas or a, a piece of of antimatter in a stable form existing for any length of time. It's so it's not like that smaller red stuff that Spock had that creates right. black holes. It's very much not like that. Or the other thing that the other movie reference that all, a lot of articles bring up is the angels and demons where they had the right. antimatter bomb explode. So right, that's that's not um, that's not what we're talking. Well, about. what exactly can we confer by capturing antimatter in a lab for a decent amount of time? It, it, giving even even the tenth of a second, that's long enough for them to to do some experiments on it, to to figure something out about it. What you would need, you would need. They were saying something like they would need like about a hundred antihydrogen atoms um, to to run some spectros- spectroscopic tests on it. But uh, the benefit, though, it's not just. This esoteric thing, what well, is kind of esoteric, but what, what we can learn though is how to perhaps maybe we can figure out how, how they're going to unify quantum mechanics and general relativity, which would be a huge major advance. We could find out more about the origins of the universe, so it's so there, there could be some interesting um, payback from. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're saying state. warp drive in 12 months, basically. <laughs> Invisibility cloaks, flying cars, warp drive, transporters, jetpacks, cool. jet awesome. all going to flow in short order yes. from this breakthrough. So is the amount yeah. of matter that we have in the universe? 
Um, is there an equal amount of antimatter somewhere else? No, like, did no. They, no. They just no, didn't the get matter, separated at birth type of deal? The matter that, that's left is just a residue left over from the, that initial annihilation. Um, and we're so, not sure why. There's some, there's some, they should be more symmetrical than, we, than they are. And there's some sym- symmetries that aren't, that aren't fully figured out yet. Um, what would the universe be like if no antimatter was created and it was just matter? Would, it be like, would the universe just be a solid mass of matter? Yeah, one giant black hole. No, I, I, don't, I don't know. It, Interesting. I don't know what... Uh, what Solid mass like. of Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to another highly speculative uh, news item where, where scientists are extrapolating specific applications far beyond the basic science. Jay, you're going to talk about this one, right? The glowing trees. Yeah, this one's pretty cool. Uh, you know how Bob and I love anything to do with nanotechnology yeah. and everything. This uh, a Taiwanese researchers came up with a way to implant gold nanoparticles into the leaves of a bacopa... Caroliniana plants, and I pronounced that correctly. No. Didn't I? You never uh, do. It causes. Did you say no? <laughs> it causes the trees to bioluminesce. And uh, you know, the first application they came up with, with would be to replace, to simply re- replace streetlights with these trees. I guess uh, if I'm correct, uh, the idea would be that they would absorb energy during the day and at night they would just they would just glow enough. And if they planted enough of them, and if they were the right size, it would be able to light the streets up. There's a lot of really cool applications to this. Like, you can't get greener than this. One is zero electric power required. Except, except they glow red, right? Yeah. So if they glow green, that would be greener. You're Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> of course, Steve uh, comes up Steve with Steve one, Jay nothing. Yeah. <laughs> that goes without saying. The, Steve is, was very interested in this next one. Uh, it actually helps uh, men with erectile dysfunction. <laughs> <laughs> J1, Steve 1. Uh, Talk about wood. How do we come up with this shit? <laughs> yeah. Thank you. No, 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 no. Don't clap, don't clap. Where's the rim shot when you need one? Yeah. Uh, reduces carbon emissions, of course, because there wouldn't be any carbon emissions. Um, it reduces light pollution. And the, uh, one interesting thing, that the leaves... Um, Actually, the chloroplast uh, will photosynthesize, and the uh, added benefit to that is that it actually uh, captures carbon from the air. So these trees could actually be doing more air cleaning than a normal tree would. So overall, and again, you know, I say this all the time, we'll never hear about this again type of deal. But the answer is no, because they actually have a plant that does it. It's not, it's not big so, enough. Yeah, so I file this under, you know, scientists doing something cool for the sake of doing something cool, and then a journalist finding some application for that, you know, some theoretical application. I, I actually am curious as to how much the scientists were thinking about this application when they were doing this research, or if they were just trying to see if they can make trees blow, you know what I mean? Yeah. But you think about the practical yeah. aspects of this. I mean, gold, gold, nanoparticles, gold. I mean, that can't be cheap. Right. Yeah, but but well, how much gold are tiny? Yeah, the question is how much yeah, gold would it be? But but yeah, but again, again, how many trees would you have to right. do this to in order right. for it to be practical? Yeah, but Steve, the trees glow. <laughs> I, I get it. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be good for a Christmas display. Yeah. So like would this be a novelty or would this have an actual practical application? I mean, honestly, that's not the kind of thing you can ever figure out until you try to do it, and then you re- then people will realize, wow, this light sucks. This is like the, a bad shade of red or whatever. Yeah. I was like the stupid criminals will be stealing the trees. They're like, there's gold in the trees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you never know. That's exactly the kind of thing that you can't anticipate. Right. So we'll never you know until it gets tried. So somewhere, you know, we'll never really know. How, how is this process different from bioluminescence or like or like fluorescent, natural fluorescing stuff? I, I mean, because that that always has such a low yield that it doesn't. There's no practical sort of use for it. Is it that kind of a deal, or this seems to be 
quite a different thing. What's the difference? Well, the trees would glow. <laughs> slow down. Small words. Come on, slow down. No, I know, but I mean, if, like, if you had, I mean, there's algae that glows. Yeah, but yeah. To have it on roads, I mean, I guess you could maybe develop yeah, some fish kind bowl of, with algae in it. No, I mean, like, you, you could spread some kind of algae on a street to make it glow. Or I don't know, but, but I mean, <laughs> you could. I don't know. I mean, I don't something. think it's yeah, fundamentally cool. different than that. Think, so okay, yeah. but so the yield would probably be similar because it's some kind of a natural glowing thing. Like right. things don't look at the surface area, though. I think the, the sheer surface area of the tree would would make it somewhat. Right. You know, George, they could just have fish tanks filled with those fish that have like that bobbing thing with the light on them. We right. Do the, that uh, too, right. Right. The, what are they called? The or a uh, jar with fireflies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's. it's I just know. wonder the, fu- the fundamental process of it seems to be quite different. This is like on an atomic yeah. level versus yeah. a chemical. Well, I guess that's atomic too. I looked it up. I, I actually couldn't get anything about the mechanism. This was like a three-paragraph. Oh, okay. Respond. You know. Well, the news item said, Jay, that something about the uh, the gold particles caught just when the gold particles are near the chlorophyll, it just causes the chlorophyll to produce this reddish luminescence. I don't know why, oh, you know, so chemically right. what's what's going on, cool. but it just has this effect on it, and who knows what what other effect other yeah radioactive right you start getting burned by these right, things. Right. But Bob, uranium. the the energy does come from the sun, though, right? If it's if it's working on that principle, excuse me, if it's working on that principle, then. It, it is just absorbing well, yeah, sunlight, I mean, especially and then especially since we're talking chlorophyll, yeah, I mean it's yeah. solar solar energy. Yeah, ultimately. How many people recognize this guy? The, the word jerk might give it away, actually. All right, three people. Think about it like that. This is this guy is John of God, and he on is on the left or the right. On the left. On the right is some patient being duped by John of God. Uh, what he is, so he he essentially does psychic surgery. Psychic surgery um, is taken to the next level. You take, you bumped up a notch, you know. And breast reduction, apparently. <laughs> you look fantastic, Alice. I promise, you look great on the beach. It looks so very good. You've been very natural. <laughs> Women, they love it's the like, small breasts. On men, it's good. Is that Steve in the lower left-hand corner? <laughs> no, I don't have sideburns. So. <laughs> um, Psychic surgery is, is a scam. I mean, there's, there's no way you can accidentally fool yourself into thinking that you're doing psychic surgery, right? You have to have palm chicken parts and pretend like you're sticking your hand into someone's flesh and pull out the chicken parts that you were palming. So there's, a, there's an element of conscious fraud that you can't get around in psychic surgery. This has been debunked many times. James Randi has a famous segment on Johnny Carson where he does a live demonstration of psychic surgery. He does a wonderful job, better than any of the con artists in, in the Philippines where this is most popular. But in Brazil and in, in other pl- places around the world, like in some, some countries in South America... They don't get the Tonight Show? They don't get the yeah, Tonight sorry. Show. But they have a different version of psychic surgery where some, some practitioners actually make real incisions. They take a, a scalpel and they cut through the skin make an incision, and then they pretend to pull the chicken parts through the, the real incision. Well, so they're, they're they, saving money on the fake blood, so that's... Yeah, so they save a little money. On, well, you know, chicken blood is not cheap, apparently. So but, but the, the, you know, one thing that occurred to me is, like, they're actually mixing human... You know, they're getting some of that chicken blood or whatever well, animal no, they're I'm, using inside the guy's body. They're not going to be using that. Jay, you, why use chicken blood when you got the real... No, but, Bob, they have the chicken parts. They have to have the chicken parts. It has bacteria on it. Salmonella. Chicken parts, yes. Yeah, my friend Sal Manella. Um, so. He, so, yeah, the, this comes with a very real risk of, of infection. Uh, he doesn't use anything close to sterile technique while he's actually cutting through the skin. He also does a couple other tricks, some old carny tricks, like he does the nail through the nose, human blockhead carny trick. You guys ever see this? You could actually take a, take a, a spike 
and you can stick it a couple of inches straight back into your sinus cavity. And it looks very impressive, but anyone can do it because you have a sinus cavity that that goes pretty far back. You know, they they practice and they lube it up and they get good at knowing how to do it, but you can do it to anybody. It's just a a fact of human anatomy that's little known and you can exploit for this old carny trick, and John of God does that. He takes forceps and sticks it into people's skulls and pretends like he's pulling out tumors. Oh, I thought he was like warming up the patient, like doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm going to cut you. Look what I can do. (laughs) And he also will like scrape people's corneas. Yeah, that's great. It's all the shtick. It's all the <laughs> shtick. I mean, just to make it seem more real, you know. And then, then he pulls out the chicken parts, and people think it's a miracle, and yeah. they give him money. That's you know, that's how that's the scam. So and at the end, he comes out with a whip. <laughs> so it can't get any worse than this, Steve, right? <laughs> well, this guy's been around for quite some time. Uh, Joe Nickel actually has done a good job of you know, duplicating some of his uh, effects, and, and like the, I don't think he's the crystal through the eye thing, but he, you know, by showing the, the techniques that he uses. Um, but the, the news item that brings this guy back in the news is that now he is the favorite darling of Oprah Winfrey, oh. who oh. is promoting him as a miracle worker. But hey, she sent investigative journalists down <laughs> to check him out. You get a logical fallacy. You get a logical fallacy. You get a logical fallacy. Everybody gets a logical fallacy. Boy. So the the report the, the the hard thank you George the hard hitting investigative report was uh, did not have a hint of actual investigation or skepticism in it. It was a completely true believer. You know, kind of promoting him as a miracle worker. Um, I think one of the, the people she sent down was like a grieving parent or something who had a, you know, a completely unobjective personal stake in something. Although they, nothing happened, they felt better after his ministrations. Uh, so there was a good subjective placebo until effect. The, until the infection <laughs> set in. Well, they, she did not subject herself to any actual cutting. It was just oh. he talked to her and made her feel better. Oh, I guess he's really doing miracles then. Think about, I want to get back to the Oprah thing real quick. Yeah. Think about how lame that is, right? All they would have to do is take one piece of tissue, whatever it is they pull out of someone, and then have a doctor cut it open and see what it is. Right? Like, how easy would that be to prove whether or not this but is... But, Jay, he's so miraculous that God could turn that tumor into chicken parts. I mean... See? Is Oprah that, that? stupid? That's yes. The- <laughs> <laughs> Listen, when... In, in a very... I don't know of that actual claim. I don't think anyone's done that, but... That when when people have tested um, the uh, spontaneous bleeding that occurs from statues or pictures or, or people, and they test it, die. and they find that it's the the exact same blood. It's not just the blood type; it's actually the blood the blood matches the person living in the home, mm-hmm. you know, who's a woman, and was claiming this was the blood of Jesus, right? So this is now supposed to be the blood of a man from whatever 2,000 years ago. It turns out to be the blood of the woman living in the home where the blood is appearing. And the answer was, well, God works in mysterious ways. It's a miracle. God can work the miracle that way. I mean, what do you, you know, you, that's, that was the answer. So that would be the equivalent of saying that, you know, the tumor yeah, Jay, turned who, into chicken. Who are you to question God? You know. Give me a break. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, you know, this guy claims, oh, I'm not doing the miracle. This is all God's work. I'm just, you know, the whole false humility, I'm just his instrument kind of thing. And I don't charge for my services, but this guy's raking it in, yeah. you know, hand over fist. I mean, this He's is, too busy saving lives, Steve. <laughs> and with right. Oprah backing this guy now? Oh, forget it. Oh. That's, that's, that's malfeasance. I mean, right? So you take a guy who's a con artist who's praying upon 
desperate people with an old carny trick, demonstrable, you know, trick. And now she's promoting him with her, you know, multi-billion-dollar media empire. That is, you know, that is malfeasance, in my opinion. She, I'm sure she thinks this guy's the real deal. I mean, maybe not necessarily malfeasance on her part. His definitely. Well, it, I, I disagree. Even if she, I don't think she thinks that he's a fraud. I don't know. I don't know what she thinks. She may not care. She may have reason to be suspicious. I don't know. Or she may just be buying a hook, line, and sinker. But when you're in that position. You know, a certain amount of due diligence is in order. Well, does she sit yeah. the journalist down? Yeah. <laughs> but I think that there's a, there comes a time when the lack of due diligence is morally indistinguishable from conscious fraud. And I think when you're Oprah Winfrey yeah. sitting on top of a multi-billion dollar media empire, that difference is gone. Yeah, what occurred to me was this is actually to Oprah. This is content. Yeah. This isn't like I don't really think Oprah's sitting back going, "This has got to be true." She's, you know, whoever her producers are that come up with the, with the material right, good for story. this, they're like, "Okay, yeah. this is really interesting. This is more crap we can feed people." She's a she's a total scumbag. Well, there's also the pie is fraud. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. You know, and it doesn't it doesn't speak to no, the. I think, I think she's self deluding because I, I, yeah. I don't think she's going out and being that. Ooh, this is a great story that'll get sponsors for you know. Whatever, oil of Olay will love this story because you have to heal the scars. Do check it yeah, out. But George, how checked out do you have to be, though? Yeah, but when you when you run a multi-billion empire where no one ever says no to you, of course you're going to be yeah, checked, out. checked out. You know, I mean, it's but like who's going to say, oh, maybe right. you should, you know, test the chicken parts or whatever that comes. In. Like no one's going to do that to her. Think and about so, it. Her involvement might be much more minimal than we yeah, think. I mean, I'm sure she she's aware of it and knows and knows what's going on. But I I think a lot of her lackeys like hey, this is a great idea, Oprah. Come on, let's do this. And then she, and they, they ran with it. So yeah, but she puts her in premature. Bob, I, exactly. Where, where I, she, I agree. I agree. It but, comes up short is that she has the resources to get anyone sitting at this table to you know a phone call. And I'm sure if Oprah called you guys and said, hey, can we talk for a minute about this thing yeah, or right. some lackey of Oprah's, so whatever. Yeah. Like that's that's where she comes. How about short. just Google John of God? We can do that too. Yeah. Yeah. And on the yeah. first page, right. you will get skeptical, right. critical analysis. She, right. she has people Google for her. So yeah, I'm but sure. right. But the, so you're, you have to be filtering right. out the skepticism. You have to actively yeah, it's be filtering excuse, out at but it's, yeah, yeah, but at yeah. this Absolutely. level, this is like she could she could find someone that, like find a healing juggler or something. <laughs> right? Like that's how stupid this is. No, that's Stan Lee. That's Stan Lee's show. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Do you have that here up in Canada? Superhumans. Oh. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's carnival tricks yeah. with with a kind of uh, uh, very old Stan Lee. Talking about it, you know, Stanley, the cartoon guy. He, he, created, ex- yeah, exactly. he created. a This man can stick a spike in his nose. I'm Stanley. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> he obviously has superpowers because I'm <laughs> from Brooklyn. Yeah, it's like okay, it's, good it's awful. It's really, but it's great and awful. So he and Oprah <laughs> could get together and yeah, no, and, we would, and our no, brains would explode. Not. Um, the last point I wanted to make was that I think that Oprah may – this may be filed under pious fraud where she thinks, who cares if it's true as long as it makes people believe and be more spiritual, right? Because she's all about promoting spiritualism. And if you value that more than the truthiness of the claim that you're promoting, then that's how it gets justified, I think, in her mind. That's my favorite pope, by the way, pious fraud. Pious fraud, yeah. yes, my <laughs> 
think the third, Pope Pius fraud the third. You don't think she's concerned? That, I mean, this guy, say this guy crashed and burned and was totally exposed. I mean, what would her, oh, then she'll bring him on the show and ridicule him like yes. she did that dude, yeah. that thousand yeah. point. Yeah. Oh, that right. yeah. 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 oh, then Oprah could she, be like, cool, turn, because, oh, look, I'm, uh, you know, just trying to, to hurt everybody. Yeah. Yeah. He, she can't lose, Bob. Yeah, she fl- yeah, you're right. She would flip the switch on him in two seconds. Oprah right. sucks. <laughs> 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 we got a lot of email over the last couple of weeks. I've actually been sitting on this story for a few weeks because I've been trying, really wanted to wait for some developments because otherwise it's old news. Uh, there has been um, a lot of press about and including an article in the New Scientist who can ne- continues now to disappoint in, in their journalism. Uh, but uh, talking about the, um, the research of a psychologist uh, by the name of Bem who, who's been around for a while – uh, who did a series of parapsychological research. And, wh- and what he did was, I mean, it's actually a, a reasonable study design conceptually in which he took some standardized psychological research and he just tweaked it so that the arrow of cause and effect was reversed, right? So, for example, one standard test would be to show people um, two pictures and uh, to measure how they react to them, right, for example. So what, what he would do was he would show them two screens behind which pictures were being concealed. I think there, there was the pornography experiment where he showed people different pictures and had them... Um, like a curtain, right? He had yeah, had a curtain. What, and what, did, what, were they, what were they rating, though? They were rating... Some, Which curtain would have the the, the, the more provocative picture? Yeah, and then right. they were right. Then they had to choose which one, and they were right more often than chance. And then there was another one where they would have to choose one of two words, and then they would be given a random word from a list to spell. And they chose were of the choice of the forced choice. Choose one of these two words. They chose the word that they would later be be exposed to more often than chance. So he's presenting this as at both of these experiments as evidence of precognition, right? So they somehow the word that they would be exposed to in the future was influencing their choice between those two words. And the same way that their reaction to the pornography in the future was influencing their response to the hidden, you know, the curtains. Um, so in, in his interpretation of this research, this is evidence of both psi and precognition, right? So this is not only some kind of you know, remote viewing, it's also predicting the future. So now we would have to hypothesize that everything we think we know about one of the most fundamental aspects of, of science is you know, the fact that there's cause and effect, that that is reversed, that somehow the future can influence the past. You got a problem with that? Yeah, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> here's the thing. Now, you know, we get challenged a lot on this, and there are some, you know, noisy, you know, believers in, in parapsychological research who will challenge us on research like this. And say, listen, this guy's a psychologist. He's done a lot of, you know, standard research that is that is you know, published in peer-reviewed journals. He's a real, quote-unquote, real scientist. And on paper, you know, his research design seems very solid. So they would say. Tell me where in the where is the flaw in the in the research design? And if you can't point to a flaw in, in the research design, then you have to accept that this is evidence of psi. 
Otherwise, you're being biased, right? But that's, that kind of uh, reproach comes in the absence of history. Now, if we step back and take a look at this research in the context of parapsychological research throughout history, it, it, you get a different picture. What I've summarized it, because we've also been challenged by saying, what would it take for you to believe that? What would it take? What kind of evidence would it take before you would say, okay, that's compelling evidence of some kind of anomalous cognition? And what I said was, uh, and what I have said is that, well, I would be, I would find compelling research where there was rigorous design, a sizable effect that's not only statistically significant, it's actually a big effect. And it was replicable. And so no matter who did that, that, that followed that protocol, they would get similar results. What, what you don't find is any research that that matches all four of those criteria at the same time. There's no psi research that has a big, significant, rigorous, replicable effect. You find some results are poorly designed and replicable or rigorously designed and minuscule and not replicable, but you never get them all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And what, what, what the, uh, the proponents do is they play, that, they play a game where they say skeptics are wrong because they say that psi research never has big effects. Well, here's one where there's a big effect. And they say they're, they're wrong because they say that psi research never is replicable. Well, here's one that's replicable. But they miss the point that it's got to be all of those things at the same time. They're, they're, they're playing a shell game. They're playing a shell game with the research. And also, don't forget, a mechanism would be nice once in a well, while. But, Come they, up with but they don't like that, hey, though. They, they would, that's, <laughs> I would like to see that once in a while. Yeah. But then you know, you know what they're going to say, you know, that we can establish the reality of phenomena before we understand the mechanism. True. And it's true, but it does – if this is also something they don't get – it does affect where you set that bar right. of evidence, right? right? What do you consider mm-hmm. significant? Right. Well – um, so well, statistical Point. significance has a pretty you know, rigorous right. operational definition. You know. So you're saying more than that. But I think, yeah, but if it's statistically significant because you did 1,000 trials and you were correct 51% of the time when trans is 50% of the time, I still have a problem with oh, that. Okay. Because that, what that means is that a subtle, a subtle problem with the methodology could account for that. It's amplified, right? Yeah. So if you have a big effect, if you have like 80% or 70%, it would take a big problem with the methodology to cause that size of an effect, and, and that would, would be, be easier to detect, yeah. right? So if you have a tiny effect, then that the you know if you could imagine an inverse sort of pyramid of the the smaller the effect, the greater the number and subtlety of the possible biases in the research. You get to these tiny effects. There's there's no way you can design research to account for everything you would need to account, you know, to a, right. especially when you're dealing with people. You know, you're not dealing with electrons, right? You know, you're dealing with people. In, in physics, you can get to that, you know, that kind of precision where you, you are a, a 0.01% difference is meaningful. Steve, right. I have two questions for you. Yeah. One is, okay, so this is yet another study where they found, they concluded that they found evidence of right. psi. Do we ever hear of studies where they flat out don't find it? Um, that's the well. That's like the file drawer effect, right? So the, the people who are doing this and come up with negative results, that's not really publishable because it's not interesting. So we, yes, we do see that, but it's generally not doesn't make news and it often doesn't get published. So with that in mind, what do we have here? The the effects that he's seeing are a, a positive effect is about 53 percent hit 
rate when you would when random chance would protect a 50% would predict a 50%. So again, that's tiny. 53% versus 50%. So even if it's true, it's pretty much useless. Well, oh. that's that's a separate question. Even if it were true, it would it would be a very subtle effect. But the, you know, of course, it being true means we have to rewrite all the physics textbooks. So that's but that's what they want. They want to say, who cares if it's worthwhile or not? This proves that psi can exist. It's a proof of principle. Therefore, all of the skepticism goes out the window. Hmm. So so okay. So this doesn't meet my criteria for two reasons. One, so a tiny effect size. Two, not replicated. The not replicated thing, though, we can not only we could put that in the in the context of history because this is not the first time someone's claimed a 53 percent or whatever, a two or three percent. Yeah, Dean Radin comes to mind. Yeah, Dean Radin, you know, this has come this has come up uh, uh, 20 times in the in the past hundred years, and not a single one of them have ever been replicable. In fact, proponents of psi have had to invent a new effect to explain the reason that their research is not replicable and they call that the decline effect psi phenomena tend to decline over time to nothing so what's that logical fallacy audience special pleading that's special pleading right that's the floating invisible heatless breathing dragon right that's the you know, the, 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 there's no evidence there because of this. I'm going to introduce a completely new arbitrary magical effect that explains why my evidence <laughs> goes to zero. Other than just saying it, there's no sign. No. Right? They're this really reaching for it now. Like the, I don't know if it occurred to you guys yeah. the, the way it did with me. <laughs> but this is a really weird study. Like, how do you even come up with this? Like, no, no, no. The, he, he took established yeah. psychological protocols and then just tweak them. So and they, that's, were, and they were all signed off, Jay. I mean, this is this yeah. one guy in his lab. This, they were all signed off by people who know what they're talking about. So the elements seem seem right. right. Just, the, you know, his interpretation. Okay, it, it does seem kind of strange to me, though, like the, just the, the concept of what he was going for here, to see if they... Because they weren't designed from the top down to do this research. He took pre-existing protocols and then altered them to, to meet this. That's, why, that's probably why there's a little, it might seem like there's a little disconnect there. It's why like pornography? Because you know? we have a baseline. We know what the response is because we, that's been a standard research protocol for years. Right? Pornography? Um, what they did find, though, <laughs> what they did find was that men usually could find the pornography. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then after about seven minutes, you have a decline effect as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he was at seven? Did I say seven? Sorry, seven? What, 14? <laughs> <laughs> Two? Whatever. I didn't realize we had sponsors for this show. This is great. <laughs> So, but hey, you know what? The, what I was waiting for was this has been replicated twice so far. His research has been replicated twice, and guess what? Completely zero effect. Neg failure to replicate. So, so far, it's only twice. It's only two of his eight experiments. But so far, there is a failure to replicate his results. So the, getting back to the tiny effect size, even if it's statistically significant, and the fact that that means there could be subtle problems with protocol, there's, how do you know, right? Because you know what? It's never going to show up on the, the written description in the methods of the published report. That's always kind of a somewhat sanitized description of what actually happened. In order to know what was actually happening in the lab, you either have to go into the lab and observe the experiment being done like, or – Like N-rays. Yeah, like N-rays, like Randy with homeopathy. So that, that works sometimes. Or you replicate it. You do exactly what's described in the methods and see if you get the same results. So this has failed replication. We have lots of other reports like Susan Blackmore who for a time did parapsychological research. She went into the lab of her colleagues.
companies to observe what they were doing. And he said her comments, and she just told this to us on an interview on the show previously, that even when the, the methods seemed rigorous on the, the official report of the study, when she observed what was actually happening in the lab, she was shocked at the sloppy protocol that was, that was occurring. So, so where does that come from? This is, this is where I like to get down to the nuts and bolts. Is it a combination of the fact that the people doing the study really want there to be a positive answer, or yes. are they just really shitty researchers? No, I think, I think it's subtle bias. I don't think it's shitty research. I think it's subtle bias. I think that there's this level of subtle bias pretty much in every research. When you get down to this tiny effect size, that's, the, that's in the noise of mm. humans doing right. research, right? It's really easy... You know, like if for ex- this, I'm just this is I, mean, I have no re- reason to believe this is actually what's happening here. I'm just giving you uh, off the top of my head, kind of the kind of subtle bias that could creep into studies. You have so- a subject in the lab and they're doing a few trials and they have to go to the bathroom or something comes up. Let's say they're having a good run. You're going to say, well, let's just finish the run, you know, and then we'll and then that gets in the data. Let's say they're having a bad run. They're like, all right, go to the bathroom and we'll start over. That's enough. That's enough. That kind of you would never even think that that would influence the results. But that kind of thing, where you know there was a, just a tiny bit of selection of which runs you, you complete and continue and which ones you don't, can be enough to give you that three percent residue of positivity right. in the study. And that that may be subtle enough where the researcher doesn't recognize it. They won't even remember. Happened. You could ask them later, and they won't yeah. even remember that it happened. Yeah, yeah that's right. the point. But yeah. then you put somebody, uh, an observer in the lab, they go, whoa, 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 oh, yeah. what's going on here? Yeah. What are you doing? You know, Or you try to replicate it, and you're not doing that kind of stuff because you don't are not invested in the results, and, and, it, and you get a, a negative, a zero result. How do people learn how to research? It's, it's, it's a skill in and of itself. I mean, you have to learn. You have to, you, it's mainly learned as an apprentice. You, you work as a, you know, in, in, in early on in your career and in training for senior researchers who know what they're doing. So you're, you know, you, in a lot of ways, it's very cultural. You're, you end up usually as good as the person you're trained under, under and also with all of the biases of the people you're trained under. So it's interesting that there's schools of thought evolve where, and, and I just had this conversation with, with a, a colleague I was talking about a news item that I was, we were talking about. I think, in fact, it was, um, I know who it was. It was Don Prothero. We were talking about the, whether or not the dinosaurs were wiped out by an asteroid or something else, right? And I said, yeah, but I interviewed this guy, you know, and he's a researcher in the field, and he said it's really compelling. He's like, listen, that's because he studied under this guy, and everyone who studied under him thinks that. But the people who did study under him all think this other thing. Like, it, it completely goes along with the culture of who you studied under. I don't know if that was enough of an explanation for me, but it is interesting that it, fo- it rigorously follows that pattern. You know, so um, that's kind of a long answer to the question you were asking. But it's interesting that the human element, the cultural, psychological element of research is always there. And that's why having competing labs replicate research is so critical because you want those biases to average out. Yeah. Yeah. But when it's the same guys, the same two, three guys, Raiden and you know other guys, all the only ones ever to come up with positive results and nobody can replicate their research and even they can't replicate their own research because it declines over time when, when pe- they get feedback and they have to tighten up their protocols. That's the history of Psy research. Steve, that really, the decline effect, they're stupid, man. <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous. That's bad. That's bad. I mean, that's not alternative medicine bad, you know, but that's, <laughs> it's, that's again, where you're taking the laws of, of science and you're turning them on their head because you are invested in a certain outcome. 
Yeah, that's bad. Yeah, yeah, that's, they really that that's embarrassing when they start to do that kind of special pleading. But wasn't that all the stuff that the, the Banachek and the Project Alpha guys took mm-hmm. advantage of? If you're not familiar with the yeah. whole Project Alpha James Randi thing that he did in the early '80s, it's really amazing to watch how uh, the, you know James Randi proclaimed that he had found two psychics and they were going to be tested, and they figured out sort of how to cheat the system by using these. Oh yeah, you know what? On Tuesdays. Bob's always kind of tired around four o'clock, and I can sneak the spoon in, you know, or whatever. Like very human kind of things yeah, that they yeah. would learn. Yeah, or oh, this guy true. doesn't look at me; he looks at the monitor, you know, when when I answer the questions, which means I can palm something, or you know, yeah. very very human kind of errors that would appear. Yeah, they were rigorously, rigorously tested, yeah. and it was right. fine. On paper, they look great. Yeah. yeah. So there isn't a class that they teach, or there there are courses, and actually, increasingly in recent years, there are. Um, Fellowships you could do in clinical trial design. So that, there, it's, it is starting to get formalized more. So it's not just an apprenticeship. You can actually take like a, a fellowship where you do study for a year, like how to design good clinical trials. But then you still have to learn how to design them in one particular area that you're, that right. you're studying. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, it's a very narrow, very particular skill. It really is. Let's move on. I'm going to do one more quick news item before we go on to um, our – or, yeah, Bob, you have to make this quick. That oh, was come on. I got, I got all this. Quick, quick. Summarize it, Bob. I'm going to challenge your skills of give, give me an executive summary of, uh, of how we're going to bend time and space. <laughs> and go. <laughs> He's right, drinking the water. Potter. He's getting prepared. <laughs> Harry Potter was in the news. Uh, today, kind of like a, a perfect of Harry Potter. They've got the entertainment Harry Potter. You got the science Harry Potter. The entertainment Harry Potter was the movies out. The new, the, the last movie, the first part of the last movie. You guys saw it. Yeah. The, now the other side of that coin, though, is Harry Potter and the science news. And if the Harry Potter is in the science news, it can only mean one thing: invisibility cloak, right? It's always whenever he's in the news in the science section, it's the, they're talking about this. Damn invis- invisibility cloak because of his invisibility cloak. Or witchcraft. And, and, uh, yeah. and the idea that uh, they, they've developed these metamaterials, it's really interesting. They developed metamaterials that could actually manipulate light. Uh, they're called these nanometric materials that actually can guide light around a surface so that you, could, uh, you can construct something that, that takes light and bends it around your surface, your metamaterial, and then back again. And so if you're on the far side of this metamaterial, it looks like that object wasn't there because the light doesn't remember where it went. You, all you know is the last straight line going into your eye. All right, so we've made these metamaterials. They're, they're, they're really interesting, but we can't do it with visible light. We can only use it with, like, x-rays right now or, or really tiny objects. But maybe in the future we will be able to create these metamaterials that can make a cloak of sorts. So I think metamaterials have a, have a, have a great future. I think we're going to do a lot of great stuff. So case in point, just as recently, the past couple of weeks, Martin McCall is an optical physicist at Imperial College London. He said, I quote, I realize that it may be possible to use metamaterials to bend light rays in both space and time, not just in space. This would add a new dimension to the invisibility cloak, literally. So his idea is that he's not bending light. You're not, he's not hiding an object, but he's hiding events. So his, his example that he goes off on is uh, robbing a bank. So he says that you could imagine a burglar using a space-time cloak to create an invisible corridor leading to a safe. So the idea then is that the, safe, the, the thief would walk up to the safe. Of course, he would set up his, his cloak, his metamaterial cloak or whatever it was. He would walk up to the safe, take whatever he wants, walk away. He'd walk away with impunity because uh, the entire event, not an object, but the entire event was kind of like wiped out. It was made invisible. The, the event itself so it was, by definition, unobservable. But yeah, so, but Bob, but wouldn't the glowing trees reveal him, though? <laughs> <laughs> Bob, are you saying that... Are you saying that it didn't happen? 
No, it happened, but it was unobservable. Yeah, it can't be observed. You mean yeah, that? It so can't be observed. We're just talking about from a light perspective, no light. It's yeah. like he did it in a room that space time. Yeah, when you because you're talking space time, like this thing, this thing that as you just described, it sounds like he's creating a pocket in reality, doing his yeah. thing, and then jumping back into reality. Am I wrong in that? Yeah. Yeah, not, well, what not is quite, it? Not quite What's right. What's happening? Well, the, the, the key is, is the metamaterial and index of refraction. The idea is that you can manipulate the index of refraction of this material. Now, the index of refraction is just how fast light goes in a material. The index of refraction for water is like 1.33, which means only that light goes more slowly in water than in the vacuum of space. So if you could manipulate the index of refraction for light in this metamaterial, then you could manipulate it. You could do some really crazy stuff like exactly what he's saying. So the idea is that you speed up light over here and you slow it down over here in such a way that the gap in the middle is where you can do some things that nobody can observe. But So, so it's not, it has nothing to do with time then? Time only in the sense that events are taking place through time. That, that's only with respect to the light. Yeah. 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 Right. Not, the act, not the actions. So you're stuff. slowing down the... So, but going back to the safe, going back to the safe, this is what would happen. The, um, the light reflecting off the safe would be – now, this is how I'm interpreting it because other websites have different ways of, of, uh, of dealing with this. But um, the light reflecting off the safe would be slowed down. So you basically you're, – you're seeing the safe as it was before the thief got there, the robber got there. So the, this light is going slowly. He goes in, does his thing, he, he leaves, and then the light of reflecting off the safe after he left is sped up. So basically it's kind of stitched together. So you've got – Whatever happened in the middle just kind of disappears because you're like yeah. editing it out. So that's that's kind of what they're doing. But Bob, so, again, my from reading the the articles, I, I walked away with the impression that in the speeding up phase, doesn't the light have to go faster than the speed of light? Well, that yeah, that kind of dovetails it kind of dovetails into the major problems, and this is that's a, that's a major yeah. problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, dovetails. That, that non-trivial. Yeah, yeah, let, me, let me tell you what the theory. <laughs> this was really pissed me off. This is what the theory says about about this stuff here. Um, okay, so number one, a space-time void of even three minutes would require a cloak that's bigger than the Earth. Okay, that's that really close. stinks. Okay, I number just two. Stop, just stop. No, no, it gets better, Jay. <laughs> I started with the lame one. The second one is the theoretical calculations only work in a vacuum. All right, that really stinks. Now, the third one, this is my favorite. Listen to this one, Jay. And with a spherical safe, right? Right. <laughs> the, third, the third one says, the theory requires a material to boost the speed of light beyond its maximum s- speed. Well, that yeah. sucks. That's one hell so, of a heist. So why do they, they're, they're yeah. getting my hopes up here, and then they kind of yank out the carpet because, oh, yeah, it, this is really cool, but it's kind of physically impossible. So, it's like, so what's the why? point? All right, well, but the apart point, from those three things. Apart from those three things, yeah, you're, you're going. great. So, all right, the bottom line is, though, that, all right, you're never going to see somebody rob a bank using this technique because of these problems I just mentioned, and they're kind of big, not non-trivial, right? right? Non-trivial problems? Yeah, they'll walk away with a million dollars in cash, but the technology will cost them trillions. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it turns out John no, of God did the you research, need, you right? You need to be fantasy land, basically. Yeah. So, but there are applications, though. It turns out that you can kind of pull this off, but you've got to be within an optical fiber. So there's, there's where your uh, optical fibers come in. They can kind of do it because within an optical fiber, you don't need to break the speed of light, and you can kind of see it from certain angles, but from other angles, you can't see it. So they can kind of almost pull it off in optical fibers. And it actually has some applications toward quantum quantum computers, which, which could be really interesting because quantum computers, you know, you're dealing with quantum systems that are very fragile. You know, if it interacts with the environment, they decohere and the effect just kind of disappears. So yeah. if you can isolate something from observation, then that, that would be great for quantum computers. So maybe so, they could do something. So once that. again, we have an interesting but subtle physical effect 
Right. They but draw you in. They, with, they draw you in with the, with the, the sales the title, pitch. Yes. Is an impossible application that's never going to happen. Bob, just right. say it for once, for Christ's sake. Say this is total bullshit. <laughs> Isn't that what I've been saying, Jay? Did you, did you listen to me? No, <laughs> use my language. You use your language. Yes. What happened to quickly? That's what I want to know. A lot of, a lot of this is total bullshit. Oh, Absolutely. You, Thank you. you happy, Jay? Yes. There you go. Well, this is the part of the show. Uh, since it's a live show, we always got to do live questions and answers, live Q&A. Um, I'm Chase from Seattle Skeptics. Um, I've been in a position to debate a lot of folks who uh, have very pseudo-scientific views. 9-11 or government creation or something like that. And one thing I really struck by is that it just seems like they process information differently. I was wondering, is there, is there any anything quantifiable that maybe, you know, maybe are just folks who just think differently for biological reasons. It's not like, it's not really a choice. We just think differently. So the question is, do uh, true believers think differently than skeptics? Like, is there like a neurological difference between the processing of their brains? It certainly seems so, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, I hate to stoop to anecdote, but I mean, certainly, I, I think that the answer to that question is yes and no. Uh, there is a lot of information about the, uh, um, and re- actual research that shows that, yes, different people do process information differently. You know, just the brain is a biological function that varies um, in all the ways that every other biological function varies. Anything you could think about brain function varies along a, a bell curve, if you will, a variation or maybe even, you know, d- different modes of variation. So, um, yeah, there are some people who have different levels of reality testing, different levels of logic, different levels of emotional emotion. You know, there's everything, everything varies. There are certain ones that certainly stick out. Uh, one, one type that sticks out is uh, the conspiracy brain, right? There are definitely people who, whose brains do function differently, and they're on a spectrum. That spectrum, in the severe states, it's actually fairly well characterized. I mean, there are, you know, we would consider it a, a disorder or a disease of schizophrenia, for example, where people have abnormal reality testing and hyperactive pattern recognition, and they see conspiracies everywhere. They also have things that we would call like ideas of reference, where they think that everything is somehow affecting them or is pointing towards them. So. The, the uh, newscaster on the TV is talking to them and giving them secret messages, right? So that's, we could recognize that kind of thought disorder very easily, but that's actually at the end of a spectrum of, of progressively subtle thought disorders or just you know, types of different ways of processing information and thinking. And there are some people who just are really compelled by the patterns that they think they see, and they don't filter them out very much. And it's not, it's not something you can teach them. It's not a cultural difference. It's just they, that's the way their brains work. So it's easy to think that there probably are similar kinds of things with all, the, all of the things that we encounter about logic and, you know, and, and, and how compelled people are with emotional arguments, for example. But I don't think that we should write off all of the differences as just as neurological, right? I do think that culture plays a huge role because there are also um, cultural differences in how people treat belief and knowledge and logic um, that are that are well documented and, and that you know uh, the cultural beliefs that are independent of genetics or, or neurology, right? It, from a certain practical point of view. It, you know, we we like to focus on what we can affect, right? So educating people. What you, you might not be able to turn every conspiracy theorist into a skeptic, but you know, our approach is to try to educate as many people as possible, keep the skepticism, keep getting it out there, and those people who are capable of reacting to it and responding to it will. And that's what we focus on. What we can influence. People are prone to think 
in that manner and not in the skeptical manner. Like we're the actual. We're the exception. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I think that's true in uh, the default mode. You know, psychologists speak about the default mode of, of human psychological function, and that default mode is very unskeptical. It's, it's a, we are true believers at, at by default, I think, and then it takes a lot of intellectual work to actually be, become skeptical. Uh, for as long as I can remember, I've always uh, believed and been told that there was never a word that rhymed with orange. <laughs> this morning, on a local popular radio station, there was an etymologist who was ta- discussing words, and he said, of course there's a word that rhymes with orange. It's sporange, which is apparently yeah. something that holds the sporangia in a fern. This afternoon, that's the first time in my life anybody's told me there was a word that rhymed with orange. (laughs) This afternoon, I hear George singing, and he comes up with a rhyme, door hinge, for orange. What possible explanation (laughs) other than a... Other than a paranormal event, I, I have three could wor- there be for yeah. that unbelievable coincidence? I have three. I have three words. George of God. <laughs> Let me pull some chicken parts out of here. Come here. Um, the, the the serious answer to that is because <laughs> there is one is uh, confirmation bias. And because uh, that seems to happen. I mean, that's happened multiple times in my life where uh, the, the first time that I'm aware of encountering a word I've never heard before, and then I see it everywhere, right? I hear the word the second time, it seems the same day or the, the, the next day. So that's uh, partly like a, a type of inattentional blindness where if you're not aware of the existence of something, it can very easily forever escape, escape your notice. You know, it, it sort of is there in the background in the environment and just doesn't register and you don't notice it. Um, but for whatever reason, it does get brought to your attention and then you start to see it everywhere. You know goddamn well not one of us heard the word sporange before. <laughs> <laughs> right, but you might have heard other words that rhyme with orange. Or you know, Well, you have to think, how many times have I sang that song and that hasn't happened to the people in the audience? Yeah, yeah right. You have yeah. to think the Thousands, you well, ten. The but and actually, <laughs> and actually I've had, I have heard door hinge as a rhyme for orange before on a show called iCarly, which I happen to know about because I have two daughters. <laughs> Uh, George just left the building. <laughs> so somebody locked that door. Hi, Carl. <laughs> hey, we speak the truth. You guys remember when Steve said that he eats the Angus burger at McDonald's because of his kids? He doesn't have kids. Right, <laughs> <laughs> just, just like watch Nickelodeon, right? Um, so yeah, yes. In in isolation, in isolation, it seems like a cosmic coincidence, and you think, what are the odds? But you obviously you have to think of all the odds of all the the possible coincidences that didn't happen, and also all the bits of information you don't notice. 
Um, and it creates this false impression of a very unlikely event, that with the, with the big picture, it's actually an unavoidably likely event, that that will happen in your lifetime, that you will encounter a rare thing twice in the same day, and you will have no memory of ever having encountered it before. It would be more amazing if it didn't happen. Yeah, like, you right. know, If like you, we never had those coincidences, then yeah, that, that would be much more amazing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But, but from a skeptical a perspective... large numbers. Yeah. Some people would take that and assign something metaphysical to it, yeah. But I love it when that happens. It's yeah. just a fun experience. It's cool. But yeah. getting back to the first question, the people in this audience think, yeah, okay, yeah, that, I understand the statistics and the logic of that. But to 99.9% of the human population, that occurrence is profound. And it's hard to escape the emotional reaction of, wow, that's a, a massive cosmic coincidence. That, that speaks to us emotionally. And you have to almost bury that and overcome it. You have to transcend that a little bit to... to out of dedication to logic, right? You want to think, ah, oh, there was some kind of cosmic alignment going on, right? That's cool. That's interesting. That speaks to us in a very, you know, uh, very basic level. I always ask people when they do the coincidence thing, explain the coincidence. I go, what, the, what does it mean? Who gives a shit? Door hinge and orange. What does that change, your, you know, anything in your life in any dramatic way or significant way? That's something I said I, I was having, and not to drop names, but I was hanging out with Adam Savage one day. And, uh, <laughs> no, his manager actually, and she, and she had arranged this great, Dragon Con is a thing that happens in Atlanta, and it's this great party that happens. Uh, it's, it, people dress as Klingons, and it's fantastic. <laughs> and uh, uh, she, when she was younger, she had gone to this one restaurant for her 16th birthday, which happened to be at the rooftop of one of the hotels where Dragon Con was taking place. So she remembered there was this really cool restaurant that had a great view of Atlanta, and we should all get together, the people that were going to hang out with you know, the, the, the Savage crew. We all got there, we were hanging out, and she sort of said, now, like... Don't you think something was at work here? She's not. She's not. She's she's more open to uh, being having skeptical things explained to her. But she still is a little. She's like, I'm not totally on board with this thing. She said, How would how would you explain it then? That you know, I I had my sweet sixteen here, and now all these years later, you know, all these disparate elements have lined up for us to get together and have this wonderful time. And I took a second and I and I said, Okay, let's say that there is some universal <laughs> bonding thing. Let's say there is some brain trust floating somewhere in the ether, you know, behind the hypnotic toad that is in charge and somehow has pulled all of these different people together from her 16th birthday, then waiting years and decades to put him and her together back into this room so that they can all hang out together at Dragon Con. I said, doesn't this massive force have anything better to do? Yeah. <laughs> and she went, shit, you're right. <laughs> so that, and it's true. It's like, why isn't there some, you know, th that's the coincidence, door hinge. Now, if you get hit by a truck full of orange doors tonight, that would be really cool. <laughs> Then we'll talk. Then we'll talk. But. Another one over here. Hi, my name is Kyle. I don't like Oprah. It was a misunderstanding. <laughs> okay. I thought Say you said opera. Now. I love opera. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm uh, asking about a friend who I'm concerned may or may not be a, a member of a, a pyramid scheme, possibly a cult. Um, she uh, started advertising uh, one day uh, that she was selling what she calls super oxygenated water. Oh, yeah, Colt. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, wait, wait, let's hear him out. Seltzer. Properties, and she says, starts saying spooky things like, um, I, I'm helping 50 families get free with my water. I, I don't know. She never 
elucidated what Did you have that look in her eye? You know that look. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I was wondering um, whether you had ever heard of uh, this whole super oxygenated water thing. Uh, she believes she's the head of her company, so it's reeks of But um, all more importantly, how to approach this friend and um, try to ease her out of it without antagonizing her, making her defensive, and pulling her further into it. I have a question for you. Is it H2O2? <laughs> it's not hydroxide, or I want to ask her whether it is, because I'm not going to drink hydroxide, Bonnie. <laughs> so, I mean, what did you ask her simple things like, chemically, what is it? Like, is yes, it- I don't think she knows. She said, I'm not exactly sure, but these people are really great. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. And so it's really hard to ask her concrete questions. She'll just say, oh, Kyle, always a skeptic, blah, blah, blah. Is she making money off of it legitimately? I think so. I think she's trying. I think she believes she is going to make money yeah. off yeah. of it. Well, that's the whole thing. I mean, what you should do is don't, I, I would start by don't even address the particular thing and how ridiculous it is. Go into other pyramid schemes to show her other companies. Shackley, even Mary Kay, like all these companies. You know how much Mary Kay makeup is rotting in people's basements right now? Hmm. Amway. Go into them. Show her what they are from the outside. You know, and maybe that'll help her say, you know, is there any similarity between your organization and these organizations and tell and explain to her how the people on top make all the money. You know, of course they hype you up with the message. Of course they hype you up with the product. Of course they want you to sell. The person right above her may have three or four people like her and above that person and it keeps going going in that direction. Those people make more money, but it's only the layer on top. So you gotta kinda come at her with the this is like all the others. It's time for Science or Fiction. We have, uh, we're going to do Science or Fiction. We, this is a very special edition of Science or Fiction, and we have a special celebrity guest uh, science or fiction writer for this week, Fraser Kane from Astronomy Cast. Fraser yeah. So I, I went to UBC for one year. <laughs> 89, engineering. So um, I thought I'd find three science stories, one fake, from UBC researchers. So these are all fairly recent science stories from, from UBC. We can all read along. And I'm, I'm sure I've got to tell. So Bob, if you could look over there, because you can't see me as I'm reading, so you won't know which... Why me? Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know you're going to catch me. And, uh, and uh, Steve knows the, the answer to this one. so he's Yeah, I had to help with the technical aspect, so I, I, I know that. I wanted to play along anyway, but I thought it wouldn't be fair. So Steve will go first. <laughs> right, so, so I'll go first. <laughs> so, so number one, researchers at UBC have found that an organism with the world's smallest nuclear genome, E. canunculi, can have 20% of its genes removed with no impact on its function. And number two, UBC researchers have been able to directly observe for the first time the moment when electrons in a superconductor transition from coherent particles into a superconducting state. And UBC researchers have discovered a marsh-dwelling freshwater fish that can evolve to survive in a saltwater marine environment in only three generations. So for the live shows, though, we'd like to get the audience feedback first. 
and then, then we'll see if we can persuade them with our expert skeptical analysis. So how many people in the audience, and, and respond by applause, how many think that the first one about the smallest nuclear genome is the fake? Okay. Item number, two, item number two, how many think that the one about the observing the transition between um, coherent particles and superconducting state is the fake? <laughs> A lot of engineers. And number three, how many people think that the one about the marsh-dwelling freshwater fish that can evolve quickly is the fake? Not as many did, did anybody biologists. here work on any of these? <laughs> <laughs> yes, don't give it away. So okay, okay. So, so you start with the guest? Yeah, okay. I'm going to go with the audience, I think, there. It's, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, uh, uh, I think solely because yeah, sure. that, seems the mo that seems the most not that big of a deal to an idiot like me. The, the the second one, so that sort of is a is a is a teaser to be to be the fake one to be the to be the, the moment when electrons in a superconductor transition can co uh, from coherent particles into a superconducting state. That would seem like that would be yeah, that's not that big a deal. Uh, so that's probably the fake. And I, I I think I actually did hear about the 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 twenty percent of its genes removed thing. And just to picture uh, you know uh, Skippy the mud skipper. And the third one uh, makes it real for me anyway. Wow. So, yeah, I'm going to say the second one is the fake one. So, Brent and Stimpy, very good, George. There you go. All right. I'll go. I'll go. Um, okay, so researchers uh, usually find the organism. So tw removing 20% of the genome and it and didn't have any impact on the entire, the entire function. Okay. 20% seems like a lot. But I do know that we have a lot of junk in there and stuff that, that may have no purpose or could just be, uh, you know, like a remnant from earlier, uh, you know, through evolution. 20% does seem like a lot, though. That's quite a bit of a waste. But I, I agree with George. I think it's, it's possible, plausible. Uh, researchers have been able to directly observe for the first time. What does a coherent, what, what's, the, uh, what's a coherent particle? Show me a coherent particle, and, and I'll show you an incoherent skeptic. <laughs> Particles, photons, they can be, have a wave particle duality. Sometimes they're a coherent particle. They act like little bullets. Sure. And other times they act like a wave, like passing through the ocean. The moment. It's a sober photon, right? So when in a superconducting material, the, the electrons, correct me if I'm wrong, become, they're, they're not coherent particles when they're superconducting. They okay. just sort of all blend together. And, and the fact that they're superconducting implies that they're not coherent. Right, so the scientists have seen the transition from when they become superconducting. They go from oh. the discrete particle to now they're superconducting as waves. All right, so the real question is, is it actually observable? Okay, thank you. Researchers have discovered a marsh-dwelling freshwater I totally believe number three. Absolutely. And I, and, I, and I also agree with George, like basically saying two seems to be the obvious one, and that's the one I know the least about. And I can't GWB, so I'm going to go with number two. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll agree with George and Jay. Um, I know that it'd be a pretty big deal to be able to see that transition from what from what limited knowledge I have of understanding exactly how this works. But uh, I remember Bob once drilling it into our heads that you can't have both. Can't be can't observe wave and particle in its other state at and that transition or at the same time. It's got to be one or the other. So I believe that one's the fiction. All 
See, guys, you're supposed to be influencing the audience, not the other way around. <laughs> All right. So now well, find out if the audience well, now we got Bob. Bob still has to weigh in here. We'll see. Maybe Bob will. Oh, man, I can't, I'm going back and forth on this one. Um, like a wave particle. Because <laughs> 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 it's like George. <laughs> oh, God. George, start your question. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I assume E. cuniculi is a, probably some bacterium. And uh, cuniculi, cuniculi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just setting everybody up tonight. Um, I mean, their genomes are fairly tiny in the first place. I guess I can kind of see uh, they could. They could I mean, there's lots of junk DNA. I assume even in uh, even in bacteria. I guess they, I could conceive of them taking away 20% of it um, and still not really impacting function. The second one, I'm not sure, I don't know what to think about the second one. Um, the, the word coherent is what's throwing me. I know that when electrons become superconducting, they, they form Cooper pairs, uh, which to me would kind of seems like it's kind of coherent in a, in a sense. I'm not sure how the word coherent kind of applies to the wave-particle duality. I've never heard that word applied to, to that. So that, I don't know what the hell to think on that one. And the third one, I don't know what kind of um, genetic change would be required to transition a fish from living in fresh water to salt water. I could see, I could imagine minor changes cascading into, the, into a change that would allow them to do that. So, I'm, so I don't know what the hell to choose today. <laughs> and I know that we have, we have imaged electrons directly, so I don't have a problem with actually seeing the electrons, but it's, um, this, the, the word coherent is kind of throwing me off here. Um, it's a live show, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> we have to be in Australia yeah, in a few hours, Bob. Australia? <laughs> oh, that's right, you are. I'm going to say the, um, the electrons, the I'm going to say something rubbing me the wrong way with that one. Um, not, not, not the imaging part of it, but the whole coherent thing. I'm going to say that one's fiction. Wait, wait. So we just proved that I, could, I told the future. <laughs> hey, <laughs> that's right. Someone called yeah, him Bob Sheldrake. Yeah. Before this. All right, cool. All right, that's cool. Let's see if the audience was influenced by being agreed with. <laughs> Who thinks that the, the reduced genome is fake? Oh, oh, yes. Who sure. thinks the superconducting transition is fake? Yes, yes, we reinforced your bias. And who thinks that the, the evolution from fresh to saltwater fish was fake? So overwhelming support for two, a little bit for three, a little bit least for one, it sounds like to me. So Fraser, come up to the microphone All so right, we can okay, actually record okay. you and uh, let us know what the answer is. All right, so uh, what I will do is I will read the uh, – no, I'm going to read the we'll, we'll go in order, I guess, when sure. we do this, right? Sure. Oh, yeah. So uh, – Genomic haircut makes the world's tiniest genome even smaller. So, uh, yeah, it's a uh, parasitic fungus. This was the science. Parasitic fungus. Uh, it's the world's smallest nuclear genome. Researchers at UBC were able to cut uh, 20% of its genes out with no impact. And the trick with this one is that they trimmed it all from the ends of the genes. Yeah, right from the ends. And so they didn't impact any of its core function. Uh-huh. They trimmed it from uh-huh. the ends, and they found even by doing that, Excellent. no loss of function for the, for the creature. Yeah. That's kind of tricky. I mean, that, you fooled us on that. Long, no, right, Steve? <laughs> well, I mean, it would be a change of function. No, I'm just saying, like, it, you, know, it, right. I, you know, I assume that you meant they were taking out, like, significant pieces of it or, or things that... Did I say that? No, you didn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, anyone, I can cut off a millimeter off the end of my shoelace, and it doesn't make a difference. 20%? Yeah. 
That's just well, the thing is, the couple of a couple of points are one. You know, we we specifically said nuclear DNA genome because right because bacteria are smaller. This is this is you know eukaryotes. Second, this is not junk DNA. This is not things between the genes. This is of the gene, genetic material, the genes themselves. So that isn't that was surprising. And also, they started with the smallest one known. You would think yeah, that yeah. it was a pretty efficient right. genome, and they went even 20% lower than that and couldn't detect. Doesn't mean there isn't any, but they couldn't detect any changes in function. So you know that's you know somewhat interesting. It is cool. I'm not cheat. I'm not. We're not going to fight, dude. Don't worry. All right, all right. Not here. So we'll for the second one then. Okay, so here's the story this is based on. Uh, incoherent excitations govern key phase of superconductor behavior. And this one actually is science. Got you all. Bravo, bravo. And uh, yeah, so it's really complicated. <laughs> Yes. Membranes normally act as insulators, but become superconductors when electrons are removed. A process known as doping holes in the material. Anyway, they. Uh, but yeah, that's that's what I was able to glean from the article. So. Yeah, that clears it up. Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> so, so right. So they. Um, so what it is is that when they they have this uh, substance where they have the electrons in, and when the electrons are removed from the substance, it creates these holes. Sort of in the in the substance. That's the moment that they're able to detect the the, the particles transitioning between the the uh, particle state and the uh, and the wave state. So they're observing the void it leaves. Yeah. So they're able. So when they remove the electrons uh, electrically, they the material actually sort of shows these holes where the electrons are are actually popping out. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Right. So we could just substitute for this item and maybe about 30 other news items I've used over the years to. You know, quantum physicists observe some weird property in the quantumness of some material, <laughs> and that's about as deep as we get. And oh, therefore, psychics are real. And so, number three uh, is the is the fake, Damn. and here's the the title of the article. I mean, come on, on. fresh water to salt water, you know. Yeah. UBC zoologist discovers tiny fish evolved to tolerate colder temperatures in three years. Right. Right. So what? So what the researchers did? Three generations. They, yeah, they took nice. a, um, a stickleback, which I guess is a fish here in BC, um, and they in they were able to find that in, they could they cooled the temperatures down 2.5 degrees, which is the amount that was the ice age in the around the ice age time, and they found that the stickleback could withstand it in three generations. So cooled down to 2.5 degrees, all the fish die. Do it. Over three years, and the fish can survive and completely adapt to the to the new temperatures. And that's so. the ice. That's the ice age temperatures. I think that was the. I think the global temperatures during the ice age was not that much. Yeah, just a few degrees cooler, cooler on and, average. Yeah. But that caught. It's the difference that caused yeah. all the sheets. You know. Yeah. Doesn't sound like much, but it's a big change when you're talking about a global average. Right. It's a cold fish. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Right. Clean so it was sweet. rapid evolution, but not fresh awesome. to salt water. That would be <laughs> quite a feat. Yeah. And the reason that Stephen knows the answer. Was I? Uh, I pitched my first draft. He says, "Now Bob's going to get that." <laughs> <laughs> so I. You so should I, have done it anyway. I dug a little deeper. Yeah, yeah. I had to come back with another draft. So. Well, thank you. So Fraser Kane, uh, who was the co-host of Astronomy Cast with Pamela Gay. Pamela Gay actually will be with us down in Sydney, Australia. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Fraser can't make it, but it's an excellent podcast. If you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend it. It's one of the ones I listen to on a regular basis. So highly recommend. Thanks for joining us, Fraser. Fraser.
Now that was embarrassing. And regrettably, this brings us to Jay's quote at the end of the show. <laughs> and it's regrettable that it's the end of the show. This is a quote by Edwin Land. We work by exercising incessant superstition that there are mysterious tribal gods against you. Nature has neither reward, rewards nor punishments, only consequences. You can use science to make it work for you. Edward Land, inventor of the Polaroid camera. <laughs> so, guys, we um, a couple of quick, quick uh, comments. How awesome is George Rabb? Oh, cool. <laughs> oh, you guys, thank you. Thank you, George. Thanks to the audience. If, I mean, we've been here for what, like three hours? It's a thank you for sticking around, and like very few people left. So thank you for doing that. It's really, really cool. Right. And thank you again to uh, the CFI Vancouver, to Fred Bremer specifically, yeah. also to you know, Ethan Cloud, Jamie Williams, Mike Leeson, Carrie Chapman, and a bunch of other names. You guys know who they are. And join CFI Vancouver. This is your local skeptical group. Thanks, guys. We had a great time today. I appreciate it. Skeptics Guys in the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. 